10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Valencia, this is The Breakfast Show with Mal Krishnasamy. Good morning, it's 7am, welcome to The Breakfast Show. I'm Malavili Krishnasamy, I'm here every Tuesday 7 to 8.30am. Coming up, we have John Rees and Amjad Ali. We'll be discussing the run-up to Christmas and what makes good CPD. It's Tuesday morning and we are live! Live from Valencia. This is The Breakfast Show with Mal Krishnasamy on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Teachers Talk Radio is growing so fast at the moment. Um, we've got almost 50 team members. Um, that's more than some schools. Some I know some small schools I only have about 20 staff. We've got about almost 50 now. Um, we've got some incredibly new fantastic hosts like Zoe Enser, Emma Williams, Ed Finch, Toby Payne Cook, Alex Wright, Bisayo, Adewale. I mean, it's a really exciting time. And we've got our old staples as well, like Halil and Sobia and so on. And it really is an exciting time at Teachers Talk Radio. We've still got a couple of slots left. Um, I think we've got uh, um, uh, on a Sunday night, 8 o'clock, we've got like one Sunday a month. So there's four Sundays. I think two are taken, one Sunday a month. Um, we'd love somebody to do a show then. And there's a couple of slots here and there, some morning slots as well. So, yeah, tune in, talk it out. If you have missed any shows and would like to listen to some more or want to listen to some podcasts, Check out the website, www.ttradio. I'm actually typing it in as we talk. Um, www.ttradio.org slash listen back. And the great thing about that is you can um, type into it. There's a search button and you might think, well, okay, I, I want to hear about marking today. <laughs> I can think of it. Yeah, you might think, yeah, or you might think, oh, I want to hear about leadership. Just type it in and loads of shows. We have so many shows every day. 
and there'll be sh- they'll guarantee there'll be a show on it. If there's not, uh, message in uh, via the um, message in and let us know. Um, oh, I just missed you, John. <laughs> I saw you call in and I was just about to press the button and disappeared. So call in again. Um, yeah, so just message in via the website or uh, email us and just let us know if there's a topic that we haven't discussed yet and uh, one of us will get on it straight away. Um, welcome, John. John Rees is in the studio Um what a star. I was moaning to him yesterday that, oh no, uh, I've messed up my bookings and I've only got, I've only got Amjad in at 7.45. Um, and it's going to be me just wittering on for about an hour before Amjad turns up. Uh, and he said, oh, I'll call in. So yeah, please do call in, John. Um, and I just missed you. So on call in, call in. We're going to be discussing a range of things. It'll probably be a little bit serious. You there, John? Be a little bit serious at first. We'll probably, um, we won't go into details, but we'll mention Arthur Lavinjo Hughes. Um, uh, to be honest, I don't think I could go into the details. It's just horrendous. I know of people that have been listening to the news on the way into work and crying. Uh, oh, you pressed it already, John. John says, what did I, what do I press? Um, you pressed it already. I just missed you. <laughs> I just, I wasn't quick off the draw. I'm still half asleep. So uh, press on the, um, there should be a little phone button. So press that. God, I sound croaky today. Go on, John. Press it. Press the button. (laughs) There we go. Invite. There we are. Hello, Rumi. Obviously not the Rumi, but... um, John. Hi, Mal. How are you doing? Are you with us? (laughs) Oh, it's so... How are you? It's been so long since I've spoken to you. <laughs> since yesterday afternoon, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I managed to um, blag you onto the show today. Oh, it, I tell you what, it's so early. Um, you know, I know lots of teachers get up early and, and do, you know, there's a five o'clock club and lots of, but this is, this is way out of my normal experience. Well, since, I think probably since, um, you know, the start of the pandemic. Mm. I'm an independent yeah, I mean, so into schools. And well, since time. moving to Spain, it's actually eight o'clock for me, so I'm over the moon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because the seven o'clock, I mean, oh, by half eight, I could just about speak because <laughs> it's just it's just too early for me. But now that it's eight to nine thirty for me, I'm like, yeah, this is fun. I can do this. This is normal. For normal people, you know, I'm gloating again, aren't I? Well, that's okay, isn't it? That's that's yeah, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> um, I suppose my my since lockdown, or since the start of the pandemic, um, instead of being you know, I live in Doncaster. Normally, I'd be one day in London, the next day in Manchester, working with schools and so forth. Now that the triangle of my world has shrunk, in that I come downstairs, I take three <laughs> steps to the left, I go into my little office, I sit there for. You know, 14, 16, 18 hours, and then I take a few steps to the right, I go and watch a bit of telly with my wife, and then I go back up to bed again. It's um, <laughs> fairly restricting. I'm not getting, I'm not it sounds like, um, 
the fox trot or something. <laughs> I've been watching Strictly last night, so it's like just moving to one, to the right, to the left. Yeah. Kind of thing. Rumi has asked a question. Can I ask, what do you teach lady and the gentleman? Well, ladies first. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to look around for the lady. Um, now, I used to teach history. And my second subject was citizenship. I taught for 20 years, but I'm now, um, I run, I now run training for school leaders. Uh, oh, we have a, have I got a child in the, no, 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 no. You have to, I'm live on air. You cannot be in here, boys. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. So I used to be a teacher, uh, but I'm not anymore. John, over to you. Um, well, I, I would normally introduce myself to people by saying I used to be a slim and curly-haired young PE teacher. Um, and, you know, as you'll see from the photos that um, Teacher Talk Radio have kindly put out about me, I'm, I'm no longer either of those things, or any of those three things, I suppose. Um, I would call myself an independent consultant. I work in schools across the country and overseas, uh, doing coaching support for teachers. Uh, I do a lot of work around personal social health education. Um, but also, as, as part of that, I'm now working with an organisation in Gloucestershire, an unashamed name drop for um, Headsight Services, uh, where one of the providers of the DfE-funded mental health leadership training. Um, and that, over the last half term, has taken quite a lot of time um, to, first of all, put together the course, but also then to now um, doing some coaching as well. Who are, who are helping to put together their strategic plans for their school to mental health across the school. And that's proved to be really rewarding. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I was and actually coaching somebody. Good to see the government putting a little bit of money into that. But um, yeah, but absolutely essential. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because uh, uh, you can see both of us have left teaching, and um, but we're still contributing hugely to the welfare of children and teachers and so on. Um, okay, let's get to it then. Arthur Labinjo Hughes. Um, I've said already that there doesn't need to be a trigger alert. I'm not going to go into the details, uh, partly because I can't. It's just too difficult. But for our international listeners, uh, a six-year-old boy in the UK was horrifically neglected and abused by his father and stepmother and last week the stepmother was sentenced for murder for 29 years and his father um, uh, sentenced to 21 years for manslaughter. Now in the paper over the weekend the Prime Minister uh, said we'll find he failed Arthur so badly. What's your view on this? Uh like you, Mal, uh, Mal Billy, sorry, um, I, I found the details incredibly distressing to read. I suppose, first and foremost, our, our thoughts have to be with the child who suffered such appalling abuse. I suppose almost immediately afterwards, my heart goes out to those adults and professionals, particularly the teachers in this case, who will inevitably now go, be going through agonies of, of, uh, of extraordinary levels of pain. Should I have seen this? What more could I have done? Uh, and the simple truth is that it could happen to any of us. Um, mm. I think also it's all very well the government saying we'll find out who failed. Actually, the failure is one of the system. 
Mm. And I know that sounds like a bit of a cop out, but you know, the, uh, and it, for our overseas listeners, this does start to get um, kind of rather UK centric political. But I think our current government has continued to underfund the National Health Service, uh, teaching unions or t- teaching um, and schools. It's continued to cut funding to social care and to local authorities. That the caseloads that some of those people have are just so huge. Um, and we never hear about the thousand that they get right. We only yeah. hear about the catastrophes. And, and as I say, my heart goes out to, to those um, professionals and individuals who will have been working with the child who will inevitably feel uh, you know, the, such, such appalling agonies of, of maybe we should have spotted this. And as mm. I say, I think the truth is that um, there, there, there probably were failures. There were probably mistakes made. There were things that should have been referred or noted or passed on or, or information shared. But actually, it's one of a systemic failure that, that I think is probably the one we ought to be looking at. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, to be honest, when I saw that headline by the Prime Minister, uh, it it made me angry, actually, because, I mean, I started teaching year 2000. And in my first school, we had a school counsellor, we had a school nurse, we had a range of learning mentors. um, And it really was every child matters, no child slipped through the crack. Um, But all of that has gone. All of that has gone. And both you and I were into PSHE and and PSHE made a huge difference to the children that we taught. Um, and all the funding for that went out the window as well with healthy schools and so on. So I just think with all that funding are taken away, and I know a lot of pressure has been put on uh, teaching assistants uh, to support the mental health of young people but when you've got thousand you know over a thousand kids in a school how can you how can you and it sounds like the school did flag up several times that there's an issue they're concerned mm. I, I'm, I'm nodding here mal which is probably not yeah. right radio um, not for radio I, no <laughs> <laughs> um i suppose that Have you gone again? You di- you disappeared uh, then. Oh, sorry. I I'm still talking. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. I can hear you now, but you just disappeared oh, for a okay. bit. Okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. you're about um, to say something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't listening. I don't know what. Um, I suppose <laughs> for me, there's something really uh, important that we don't know about. Um, we don't know about the detail of this, and until there's been an inquiry, it's incredibly hard to comment. Mm-hmm. But the again, I think it comes back to a systemic approach about what do we think that schools are for? Um, you talked about deciding teaching, did you say in 2000? Um, yeah. I, the priorities then were, were recognised as being different, and I think we had a different approach to, what, to, to the purpose of education. Um, mm-hmm. Schools now... Uh, so well, let's take it up until the pandemic because I think things have changed from there. We we tended mm. to focus, as you said, away from the, the welfare and the well-being on, on educating what we would say, what we normally talk about, the whole child. And we seem to have now spent some years focusing just on a few things we think we can measure. And that's mm. fine, and that's a huge part of education, but it's not the only part. And I think we also then have to look at what is it we're trying to to enable children to do and to become and what needs to be done to address that. 
since the pandemic and, and probably in the years before that, that through, it's been the UK through austerity and so forth, we have um, families under such colossal pressure mm. that I think if we only focus on the, the tip of the iceberg, if we only think focus on, on the academic performance of children, um, then, then, we need, then we're missing a trick. And I appreciate that teachers are not social workers. We're not uh, trained to do those things. But the system around the child needs to provide sufficient services that teachers don't have to do all of those things, but are central to a, a, a central plan. Mm. Uh, which is a deliberate government policy and, and small wonder that we, we, we end up with a catastrophe such as this. Yeah. And it's, I have to say that um, my heart goes out to all the um, safeguarding leads out there because mm. the past few weeks must, must have been horrific for them because I think it can be quite triggering for them in the sense of, you know, they see an awful lot, they go through an awful lot. Um, I could never do it. I could never have been... Um, a safeguarding lead because I just think I do, I'm just way too emotional. <laughs> and I had a kid cry me once because his parents had had a, a, a row in the morning and it was first thing in the morning and his cute little face, <laughs> this cute little year seven boy. And I was like, I was almost in tears with him. I was useless. <laughs> I just, you know, I was completely useless. And I just said, oh, it's okay. I'll take you to Miss So-and-so who can help you. Because <laughs> I was like, ah, kind of thing. And But I really feel for um, the safeguarding leads out there because, you know, they, they hear some awful stuff. They deal with some awful stuff. And I suppose that's when the supervision is really important for them. It is. Um, I, I'm not... I'm not sure that supervision is, is necessarily the right word, but teaching is about the only profession that works with vulnerable people, or teachers, mm. I should say, who don't, um, as a matter of course, have uh, supervision or, or professional reflection. Uh, mm. the, the kind of symptoms that you were talking about there where, you know, I'm not sure if this is the right analogy, but it's some, in my mind, it's something about kind of barnacles gathering on the hull of a ship, one little bar, you know, one... Um, small piece of distress that you're having to pick up from a child, or, although uh, upsetting at the time, is fairly minor, is fairly inconsequential. Uh, but that accumulates over time. And I think there mm. can be some, some really traumatic things that some of our colleagues are having to carry and having to deal with. Mm. Um, yeah. And again, as part of our professional training, teachers aren't um, taught about form uh, and how to respond. Uh, but it's not it's not across the board, and it tends to be a bit retrospective rather than necessarily mm. initial teacher training. Uh, and again, I think we need to look at, at a whole system review that just says what is it that people need? It is a year or two sufficient, or how do we make sure that we build in ongoing CPD for staff? Um, mm. I, I don't know of a school that doesn't provide CPD, but it isn't statutory and it isn't expected. Uh, sorry, it isn't uh, a statutory thing. And mm. therefore, I think we need we we miss out, and ultimately, children and families miss out because teachers don't get trained to do some of these essential things. Mm. Yeah, and it seems well, like I said, twenty years ago, there was it was almost like a village. 
that was supporting the child and the school okay the school was the village but the, you know there was the outskirts of the village as well that could support the school to support the child and now it's all been taken away so it's all on the school and and i think when I was teaching, whenever I watched the news or something, um, and they say, well, schools need to do more, it was like, how much more, how much more can schools do with less? Yeah. And, and I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? Um, a little bit like a sandcastle with tide coming in, that there's more water surrounding it. Or, or, you know, it's probably not a great analogy, but the point <laughs> is, I suppose, that the, the more pressures that schools are put under, the less resources we are given to 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 to, to help address some of those problems, mm. um, and therefore, understandably, some of our colleagues will be, you know, kicking back against that. And we're we're not social workers. Well, our job is to do this. Now we're not supposed to do that. And I have some sympathy for that. But again, I think we need to look at the systems that just say, so what is it that this community needs? What is it that our society needs? Mm. And how do we allocate resources that that are never going to be enough, but actually. Mm-hmm reduce some of the pressure on on those frontline teachers yeah when we were chatting yesterday Melville, you said that um you were meeting teachers in spain who are significantly less stressed than teachers you i said well you said that teachers you've met in spain mm. are less stressed than yeah teachers, you know yeah and i think um part of it is the workload is much less um you know, somebody said to me the other day, would you consider going back to teaching? And I'd burst out laughing because I think back to when I was a head of department and I probably had three frees or something, or probably two frees. So it's a full-on timetable. And the thought of doing a full timetable now, I don't know how I did it. And with a subject like history, I know we always say things like this, but like a subject like history, um, where there's so many essays and so much marking to do, but you've got so many classes. So like with English, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's worse for us compared to English teachers, but with English, they've got, they might have five classes. I mean, one year I had 17 classes. I mean, that's crazy. And if you're teaching RE as well, it's even more because you only see them once a week. That's an awful lot of kids. It's, you know, it's a lot of, that's a lot of planning, that's a lot of marking, that's a lot of dealing with issues with the kids and parents, that's a huge amount of children. And um, and I look at the teachers in Spain, and, and I've gotten to know a few here, and they're like, oh yeah, it's pretty chilled, we don't have as many classes, we don't have, the workload is so much less, our evenings are our own, you know, I mean, it might be just where I am, because every a district like Valencia is a whole district I didn't realize how huge it was as a kind of like the equivalent of a county um like Dorset County it's quite big and so they have different kind of a bit like states in America different rules compared to like Madrid or something so it might be a bit different but generally um the system's very different over here Mm. I, I hesitate to step into the turf wars between history teachers and English teachers, um, oh, but I'm sure I can hear You were a PE teacher, weren't you? <laughs> originally, originally. Uh, originally. I needs, oh. And then I drifted into some geography and some modern languages and, and that kind of stuff um, and loved it. Um, yeah. I, I was just thinking, I wanted to go back almost to your, your point a few moments ago about 
the support or the pressures on our safeguarding leads. Uh, and recognize, I think, also that, you know, it, it has always been thus. But now, because of the pandemic and the extraordinary pressures on schools, you know, I was talking to a school recently, we said you've got 40% of the staff out on one day, and you never know who's going to be in school the following day. I really wanted to, mm. to kind of take the opportunity to say thank you to them for the extraordinary service that they've given. When, when lockdown started, when the pandemic started, Professor Becky Francis, who's chief exec of the um, Education Endowment Foundation, talked about teachers being the fourth emergency service. Mm. And, and although we're reflecting on systemic failures, um, uh, you know, such as uh, the, the, the tragic death of the child you've been talking about, I think we also need to recognise that teachers have just been awesome in the way that they have continued to support, you know, continued to teach, continued to support each other. And, and maybe as that, that, those kind of darkest days at the end of November um, are now past and Christmas is just about within sight or at least within staggering distance, maybe now would be a good time just to, to thank and congratulate and to praise those extraordinary teachers who, who continue to motivate and engage and inspire children on a day-to-day -day mm. basis. I think it is very easy to, you know, to, to reflect on, on just how demanding the job is, how exhausting the job is, how exhausted our people are, and of course our leaders as well in school, I mean, but actually the fact that they are still standing, still turning up, still making a difference, Mm. It's just phenomenal, and we should thank and congratulate them. Absolutely. I mean, I was in complete awe of my kids' teachers last year, you know, during the pandemic, during, you know, at one point it was hybrid learning, one minute they were uh, in school, next minute they were at home doing these lessons. And the teachers always had a smile on their face, welcoming our kids into the school, always looked happy. I mean, they... You know, the amount of pressure that they've been under uh, to do so much in such a short amount of time, yet for the kids, they didn't show any of that. And it was, it was you know, incredibly impressive. It, it, so, it is. Yeah, I, I yeah. It continues to be so. Um, not helped. Let, let's open the Ofsted, Ofsted box for a moment, the School mm -hmm. Inspection Service. Who continue now to come into schools and subject schools to? to I do not. I just cannot understand this. I cannot understand how Ofsted can go into a school that might have half the staff off or half a whole department off due to COVID. Uh, you know, kids off left, right, and centre. Um, staff under so much pressure. Um, you know, I mean, I. I know during this time of year, I remember uh, being in charge of cover <laughs> during the winter term, a big, oh my God, that was the biggest stress I've ever had. The amount of cover I did personally was unbelievable because there was just nobody else. Mm. And or I was like, actually, I can't make that. They'll break. If I give them another cover, they'll break. I'll do it. I'll do it kind of thing. Mm. And that's where we've got the flu season we've also got om omic what's it called omicron i didn't learn greek <laughs> omicron omicron something like that something yeah. like that you know you've got all that going on on top of all the other stress going on and you just think how often how can they look at themselves in the face and go into a school and judge them you know, it's different if they were going in and said, look, 
I'm not doing anything. I've got a DBS. I'm, you know, I can support you or I can coach you. I can do what, you know, going in. That's what schools need, extra hands, extra support, you know. Well, it's curious, isn't it? I I will will confidentially between the two of us, Mary. Oh, yeah, nobody else listening. That's okay, then. (laughs) I I trained for Ofsted a lot many many years ago oh um the dark side (laughs) i shouldn't talk like that no there's a lot of lovely to be honest i've had um i've had some really good offsteads where it felt like cpd it sounds awful Mm. sounds weird but it felt like cpd the offsted the main offsted inspector was brilliant and it felt like I was getting mentoring on how to improve the school. It was just, yeah, it was really good. So when it's done like that, it's brilliant. But I've also had the, um, you know, kind of like uh, where they're just interrogating you and just don't support you and then just make their judgments kind of thing. And it, and it's harrowing. Mm. <laughs> it's pretty awful. But yeah, what were you going to say? Point. You dabbled with the dark side. Everybody's allowed a little flirtation with a dark side. You know. <laughs> well. I defend myself. Now, mm. the, the turning point for me was a, a conversation I had with somebody. So I, said, oh, I was really looking forward to supporting schools. Mm. And they said, no, 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 this is not about supporting schools. This is about judging schools. And I thought, what? Oh, my goodness. Well, oh, no, well. that's, that's yeah. what I've said it there for. And well, we all know judging. this, but. Yeah. And, and again, I think we then, uh, as a country, we need to look at, at, at an education system that is probably not fit for purpose. Um, well, we've got a judgment system, and I'm not saying that schools should not be inspected. But as, as you alluded to, I think it's that balance between inspection and judgment and support, where if mm. something isn't working right, then, you know, I take my car to the garage, they said, mate, your car has failed its MOT. Oh, that's not so good. But actually, what we can do is then help you fix it. That, that sounds mm. like good news to me. So we need yeah. to make sure that schools are fit for purpose and that things are being done as well as they should be and, and, and correctly. But surely it's not just about, and, and that's where the MOT analogy breaks down, mm. I suppose. This is something about, it's not just about judging that, but it's then about saying, and this is what we can now do to help you fix that, mm. uh, to, to continue to, to improve outcomes for children and, and for staff, of course. Yeah, I think sometimes, and this is where consultants get a bad rap, um, schools get a consultant in to do that. And uh, I'm speaking as a consultant myself, but I'd never go in now. I mean, I've been out teaching um, four years now. I'd never go into a judge, a school, I'd never do that anyway. But even though I was responsible for teaching and learning all those years and CPD and so on, I... I would never run CPD for training teachers now because I feel like I've been out of the game way too long. You know, you have no idea about raise and shine and all that malarkey. But like, um, but the problem, I think it's a breakfast I, cereal, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but I like, uh, yeah, just a tad. <laughs> but um, oh, it's just another word for something we all used to do in the past, like retrieval practice. I was looking into it and I was like, you mean assessment for learning? that's basically what it is you know just checking they understand and then going back to it and I'm like but there's whole books on this you know we've been doing it for years anyway sorry anyone (laughs) he's really into it it's basically the same stuff yeah probably but it's just you know we're, we're 
I remember when I started 20 years ago, people were saying that to me, people that had been around for a long time were like, oh, it will come round again at some point. And whilst teaching, I saw it, certain things come back, like um, SMSE, that was a big thing 20 years ago. Then it turned into something else. Then it came back again. Mm. And it was like these things come round, don't they? So um, I completely forgot bef- uh, what I was saying before I had a rant. Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> I was talking about consultants. The problem is when they get a consultant that hasn't been in schools for 20-odd years um, and they're part-time Ofsted inspectors and then they come in and they give you uh, advice that you're looking at that isn't up-to-date, and you're like, how much money did this school spend on you? <laughs> it's just, and that's happened to schools I've worked in several times. Where I'm like, this is not, this is not useful at all. That's tricky uh, for me uh, because I haven't actually taught full time in school s- and since uh, goodness 1995. Wow, so- <laughs> that's a different century. In every sense of the word, but I have been in schools or with schools every day, every working day since, uh, and in dozens and dozens of schools. And although I haven't taught full time in a school, I would still think of myself as knowing the schools pretty well. And I suppose Mm. the stuff that I support around personal social health education or our relationships and sex and uh, and health education is something that people haven't um, had initial teacher training in. Uh, for many years now, we haven't provided very much CPD around that kind of stuff. And I think there's a real need. I think for me, the difference is, Mel, that it would be, it's less about then going in and judging schools or, or kind of sucking on your teeth and saying, oh, well, you've got some problems here and, and it, will only cut, it will only cost you 10 days of my time to come in and fix it. But it's actually to, to be supporting the school to say, what's working well? What are some of the challenges you have? And, and how do we help to improve that? Mm-hmm. Um, as you were having a little rant about um, inspector or, uh, inspectors and consultants and so forth, I was smiling to myself uh, as a slim and curly-haired young PT teacher, I think my first year of teaching, I remember <laughs> this guy came in, and, and for some reason it used to really infuriate me that he never put his arms in the sleeves jacket. He just did it draped over his shoulder. I don't know why that used to bug me so much, but it did. But the point was, he, sit, he used to sit there and say, I don't have any answers. But right, you're kind of coming in and out. Are you oh, are you sitting still? Are you sitting still? I am. Yeah. Okay, because I'm you're sitting. kind of gurgling in and out a bit. Oh. <laughs> gurgling is my best look. <laughs> oh, I'm really sorry. No, I've been keeping... Okay. The last um, thing I heard was um, uh, curly-haired... <laughs> right, we've got Jenny here who says, ha. Oh, that yeah. was a long time ago. You know you've been a teacher a while when Um, you start to say things like that. I remember in my 20s hearing the teachers saying, we did that in the 80s and rolling my eyes. I'm now that teacher. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right, what were you saying, John? Um, I was talking about a guy who used to come into school. I think he was some sort of consultant or inspector or something. Mm. Uh, And it used to really bug me that he never put his Mm. arms in the sleeves of his jacket. And I don't know why that got to me so much. Uh, But he used to sit there and say things like, I don't have any answers, but I do have a lot of interesting questions. And I just wanted to throttle a guy. You know, I was just (laughs) curious. 
just give me some blooming answers here. I, I need some help here. Um, and now I spend my my time asking interesting questions. Yeah, I was um, thinking that that sounds like coaching. <laughs> <laughs> he was ahead of his time. <laughs> well, do you know the other the other my favourite story about that? My mum was was a reception class teacher, uh, mm. teaching five year olds, and I knew therefore that the rest of us were only ever playing catch up because she convinced me very early on you need, we need to get it right from right from the beginning and, and of course we do. Uh, she met my dad, who was also a, a teacher, and they met immediately at the end of the Second World War, and they were emergency trained, as they called it. There was a two-year teacher training program. Mm. Um, and my mum told a story that one of her lecturers told her, so this would be 1946, 47, something like that, um, mm. and she said, why should you never chase after a blonde, with or without the E, a number 19 bus or a new education initiative, because there'll be another one along in the minute. And I think that that notion of we, we go through cycles and spirals of this has been the flavor of the month, this is something we, we're hoping to do. And, mm. and you know, it, it comes back to bite us uh, or, or come back to, to revisit in a, in a slightly different format. I guess it was always the way. So mm. we need to embrace that. We need to move forward. Uh, we need to, con- you know, teachers need to continue to do the fantastic things they do for children and young people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's almost Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> you sound like you're looking forward to it. Well, I am. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I have a, a wonderful wife. We have two lovely kids. We have a nice home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just conscious that, that Christmas should be, whether you celebrate it as a religious festival or not, should be just a, a lovely time for families. But mm. I suppose also, and, and, and you know, every TV ad, every magazine thing, everything you see on the internet, um, it's all about consumerism, and that mm. troubles me a little bit. Mm. But it's also we're all supposed to have a you know a huge turkey and a, and a, and a fire and, and just lovely, lovely stuff. And and we know for so many children, and young people, and families, life isn't like that. Uh, no. I have to say, I hated Christmas. I absolutely detested Christmas because it was two weeks at home with my family and I did not like them. (laughs) This is as a child. (laughs) This was as a child. You know, I did not like uh, a lot of my family that I was stuck in a house with uh, for two weeks. Mm. I mean, I loved the summer because you could just, in the 70s and 80s, you just went out and didn't come back till it was dark, you know. So that was great. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, Christmas was always traumatic for me. You know, I had to test it until mm. I had my own kids. And even when I was a teacher, when I first became a teacher 20 years ago, um, I hated the holidays because I wasn't around people. And school gave me, work gave me somewhere to go <laughs> and be around people, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, it sounds like, oh, such a sad, sad, poor bow, poor Malibili. You know, I have to remember what my name is now. And like, <laughs> yeah, but we have to remember that. I mean, when lockdown happened, there were certain people that, I mean, I was supposed to be doing a group coaching session and I ended up, coaching staff individually because they were all over the shop and some of them that were in the worst state were because they lived on their own uh they went to school were basically on their own 
in their classroom because they couldn't mix with anyone else and then went back to their empty flat. And in terms of mental health, that was rough. That was really rough, you know. And, um, yeah, and, and I just think that we need to be aware of that. And it's something that I remember uh, somebody put on Twitter the other day, I don't know, last week or something, when they were talking about... Um, well, you know, this brings us right back around to uh, Arthur um, talking about safeguarding training and how it needs to come with a trigger warning. And I remember, because uh, I went to the Institute of Education and their lecture hall mm. like holds about a 1,000 people and me and my mates who sit at the back. <laughs> so we get this why, bit of, there were a couple of no times, <laughs> there were a couple of times where I led the charge to just walk out. <laughs> in disgust <laughs> but this particular time yeah. uh we weren't told this is what our lecture was going to be on it was going to be on um what did we used to call it child protection it was going to be on child mm. protection and um the stuff they were talking about should have come with a trigger warning because mm. i sat there and i've not uh made any secret of the fact that i had a very difficult childhood and I sat there and I felt like there was a massive spotlight on me. Uh, my best mate was sitting next to me and just held my hand because she knew straight away that this is not going to be good for you. Uh, and this was in the days when I'd never spoken about it, really, mm. apart from to my best friend. You know, probably spoke to about two different people about it in my entire life. And um, when they were talking about all kinds of abuse and the language around it some of the language i'd never heard before mm. um and it was like putting a name to things that had occurred in the past mm. and that you know to have that happen when you're sitting in a hall with a thousand other people <laughs> you know it's quite um it's quite upsetting and i was upset for days and days afterwards you know and it it's something that initial teacher training people need to think about because we don't, you know, teachers don't come from the uh, typical, not all teachers come from the typical stable, lovely middle-class backgrounds. Um, to me, as I worked in London, most people I knew weren't like that until the teach first came in. But like, uh, um, you know, they need to be aware of that, that teachers have their own traumas they've come from yeah. difficult backgrounds themselves so um i don't know how we came about talking about that well, but, just you know. just to rewind for a moment mal when you were talking about mm. um the, the the needs of teachers there, there's a brilliant book um called the human givens by two british psychologists joe griffin ivan terrell and it talks about nine things that we all need as humans and i've used it as, as a training exercise with with a number of schools and colleagues just a really interesting perspective about saying that we need to recognize the needs that we have and that the children we teach have um, and recognizing and understanding that and if those needs aren't met it is devastating uh, and we mm. need to to really kind of get that not just at an intellectual level, but as you say, as a, as a kind of visceral level that just says, geez, that that's when that student is playing out or acting up. But, you know, our language is so important, isn't it? If I get you on the radio, so I got a kid kicking off, you march down with one set of expectations. If I say I've got a student in distress, it changes the whole 
nature of the way we look at the things. But when we've got mm. young people who are displaying disruptive behavior or acting out or however we wish to describe it, the needs that they will have will be so huge that they will do mm. anything. Uh, you know, we talk a little bit about atta attachment, for example. Att oh, yes, it's a bit of fluffy. No, attachment is about life and death. Uh, mm. I, mean, I could go on, but it, it's that level. And that, that's where we need our teacher training to, to equip teachers with the skills and the knowledge and then the tools to be able to, to help address that uh, to get them to, you know, to, to be able to work effectively with children. Mm. And the, the things that you were just saying then, I, I, my heart goes out to you because that must have been incredibly hard to sit in a lecture theatre and have some of those things uh, described back to you. How, how did you, apart from feeling upset, how, how did that influence your professional development or your professional thinking? I think it, more than anything, it influenced me in terms of CPD, which brings us up to Am Amjad's in the studio. Welcome, Amjad. Um, in terms of CPD, um, I made sure I was very aware of the reasons why we're doing this. Um, so, for example, with PSHE, there was a lot of backlash about it when I was introducing certain schemes of work. And so I did a whole um, school inset on it, talking about the figures, the statistics of drug abuse and young people that may not get pregnant with us, but as soon as they leave, within a couple of years, they get pregnant and um, so on. So um, I made sure that people understood the why and I made sure that um, I gave trigger warnings and I still do that. Like with my radio shows, I give trigger warnings on mm. the, the, the show a couple of weeks ago on racism. I put a trigger because when you see something and you're not expecting it and it, it you know, like I just with the whole racism thing with the cricketer when he was talking about being called the P word, mm. just hearing that. I mean, my little boy was playing Pac-Man and he ended up using the P word because he was just, you know, he's only five and he didn't know. And he mm. was, he used the P word and it was so kind of hearing it from a different room. I sort of went in and just went, oh, let's not use that word. Eh? And they're like, why? And I'm like, oh, it's just, it's a rude word. They're like, oh, <laughs> okay. And I was like, it's fine. And and my other half was like, what word was that? And I said it. And he was like, oh, who is using that? What's that? And I was like, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And it just, but when you suddenly hear it, I mean, Amjad's in the studio. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Amjad, I know we're here to talk about, welcome, welcome, by the way. You've been hiya, threatening. Hiya, morning. 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 You've been threatening to come onto my show for <laughs> so long. <laughs> I know. It's, I'm really sorry. I'm here now. Yeah. No, no, no. Don't Thank worry. You for but having I was, me. No, 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 don't worry. Um, we're, we're just talking about um, things that can trigger things. And I was saying that my little boy uh, was talking about Pac-Man and gave Pac-Man a little nickname mm -hmm. that is a word that me and you wouldn't appreciate. Okay. Yeah. Or many people wouldn't appreciate. Yeah. And so I had to have a little word say, oh, that's a little, that's a rude <clears throat> word. So let's not use mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering how you felt when that whole stuff with, the cricket and the racism, all that came out. I know you said we're not going to go deep today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just thought I'd hit you with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that still the thing that still fascinates me is that P 
people only uh, assess things through their own lens. Mm. And so lots of people will say to me, oh, Amjad, you played a lot of sport. Um, you played high level sport. What was it like for you? I'm like, are you asking me what was it like for me compared to you? Or are you asking me what was it like for me? Because they're two different questions. Mm. And people find those quite difficult to understand. I said, because if I tell you what was it like for me compared to you, you'll judge my experience as an isolated incident compared to mm. your experience because you'll say, actually, it wasn't like that for me. It was all right for me. I, you know, it was no problem. Mm. But if I say, actually, no, this is what it was like, you know, what do you make of that? So it's the whole cricket thing has been fascinating because lots of people have come forward and said, you know, we've lived through this and we've talked about this and nothing mm. has happened. But I think lots of people, and, and it's it's kind of reflective on lots of situations. So the Sarah Everard situation, mm. um, you know, where lots of men were saying, is it really that bad? Because, again, they were looking at things through their own lens. Mm. So I yeah. think people need to understand and accept that other people have experienced and lived through things. And therefore, we need to take a step back and say, right now, this isn't about me. This is about understanding about you. And mm. then moving forward in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It is, Absolutely. Isn't it? That's, yeah. That's the way it's got to be. Yeah. And, and therefore, that's about listening and recognizing our own privilege our own, or privileges, um, whether because we are white and male or whether because we are teachers. Uh, we need to recognize that other people's lived experience would have been quite different and we need to be empathic. Uh, and then instead of just ringing, and I know you're not just, none of us are just wringing our hands, but then saying, actually, as you were saying, Amjad, what is it we can now do about that? I've had my eyes open. I've, I've been listening mm -hmm. to this. How, how do we start to put this right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, John, you're coming in and out again. So oh, I'm I so just, sorry. No, well, don't worry. I'll turn but... off my microphone. Lovely to chat to you, Malvili. Uh, I know yeah, I'm going to look to forward to you. listening to the, the two of you in conversation. Um, so thank you so much. Good to speak to you. Take care, Amjad. Right. Nice to Cheers, see you again. John. Take care. Say Take right, care. Bye, John. Amjad. Hello. Hello. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Sorry thank to you. hit you with such a serious question uh, straight no, away. No, <laughs> no serious slash real life, isn't it? That's what it is. Yeah. It's, not, yeah. it's, nothing, it's nothing new. It yeah, is what it is. yeah but that's the yeah that that I think that's been the upsetting thing. It's nothing new, mm -hmm. and like it, it all comes back round again, and you're like, oh, when's this it's ever going to end? The, it's no. the desensitizing to it as well. You know, it's that yeah, it's that idea of well, I'm not surprised. You know, it's not it's not a wow, and it's the same way. Like I said, in terms of the intersectionality of this situation, in mm. terms of, for example, a female saying, well, actually, like, why did you not notice? And then the kind of crossovers between a female and a black female. So there's a report mm. recently that was published that £17,000 less on average is earned by female leaders. Um, and then wow. if you break that down, yeah. if you break that down further, <clears throat> is that just white female leaders? Is that black mm. female leaders? Like how, how does that kind of equip uh, and equate to other areas as well? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're here to talk about great CPD. First of mm -hmm. all, did you always want to be a teacher? Um, to be honest, my background, uh, it, it kind of through my upbringing, uh, no one went to university around in my family. My mm. core friendship group 
only one or two people went to university. So the kind of idea of a professional kind of job was just that ambitious dream that your parents have. You could be a doctor, you should be a lawyer, you should be this. And it wasn't never, ever in reach. So in mm. terms of being a teacher, in, in one capacity, yes, I've always worked with children. So I was a play worker from 17, youth worker, and then I worked in um, young offender institutes, mm. and then I did my teacher training. So I've always worked with young people. Yeah. And in a way, I've always taught. You know, there's always lessons to be taught in terms of life lessons and moral lessons. So mm. I guess so, but I didn't really sort my life out enough to understand what it meant by wanting to be something when you grow up, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... I think uh, many people just kind of fall into it, don't they? Yeah, and I think yeah. I think what's important is to, when asked, do, do you always want to be a teacher? In my viewpoint, it's always good to never start by saying, well, actually, I wanted to do this, but I fell into teaching in mm. the sense of it was my backup or my secondary thing. I think it's okay to say uh, I learned that actually this is something that I want to do and this is something that I want to be involved in but it kind of for me being a teacher was so out of reach and grasp it was never something that could be achieved so therefore mm. I would never have thought about wanting to do it yeah so it was like like I, I was never taught by anyone that looked like me anyone that was like from my area or anyone that you know could have made me feel like actually you can also be here mm. yeah and that's quite interesting that because um I wasn't really taught I mean I don't know because I grew up in East London and mm -hmm. actually in secondary school I had a lot of teachers who were from all different backgrounds but never mm. from the same background as me um mm. but it did you know, my history teacher was amazing. He he looked like Shaft. Do you remember Shaft? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, uh, he looked like him, Mr. Edwards. He was so cool. And um, he just walked past me one day in, when I was in year nine and just said, hey, you, you know, options are coming up. Are you thinking about taking history? And I shrugged my shoulders. And he was like, I think you should. You should, you know, you did all right in that test. And I was like, okay. Mm. That's the only reason why I took it. <laughs> Yeah. I did history. I ended up being a history teacher for 20 years, but well, because go, that yeah. teacher gave me a bit of attention. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's yeah. it. And it's that, it's that whole idea of, you know, success breeds more success. So mm. someone, somebody told you, actually, you could be successful at this. Yeah. You know what? I want a bit more success then. Let's do this. It's, yeah. that's, I mean, that's the single most important thing in education. Get your students to be successful. And I know mm -hmm. that it's more complex than it sounds, but you'll never hear a student that turns around and says to you, you know what, sir, I love your lessons. I work really hard in your lessons. Uh, I can't understand a thing in your lessons. <laughs> like, what? So you'll never hear that. But you might hear, sir, I like you. I really enjoy your lessons. But I don't understand a thing in your lessons. That's why I don't really like your class. Yeah. It's nothing personal. I just don't get it. Yeah, I had this kid, I still remember this kid saying, Miss, I really like you, you're great. And I was like, oh, cheers. And he goes, but I really don't like history. Yes. <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, what? I was wounded. You can't, like, you can't, right. yeah, yeah, yeah you, can't, you can't help but take it personal. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's like the same way 
students that I teach that will come up to me and say, sir, I love English. I'm like, do you? Do you really love English? They're like, yeah, I love it. I'm like, what do you love about it? Oh, so I love your lessons. I'm like, so do you love the fact that you're doing well in English right now? Is that what you love? Hmm. Um, and they're like, no, no, I love English. I'm like, all right, cool. Let's keep it at that. But the reality is that they're like, actually, I could do all right at this subject. I could mm. do well in this class. Therefore, suddenly this lesson becomes my favorite lesson. Even yeah. if they've had no relationship with you previously or prior to that, they'll still love that lesson. So the success yeah. element is really important. Yeah. And I think that is probably especially true in the type of schools we've worked in. So um, in areas where there's higher deprivation, where self-esteem isn't as high, and like you say, where they don't have that role model within their families. Like me and you were probably uh, the first in our families to go to yeah, university. Yeah, yeah, so not having those role models um, makes a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, I'll never forget the first time I did coursework at university. So I did a law degree. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd only ever completed A-levels that were modular examinations, so I'd never really done coursework mm. before. I got 11% in my first assignment, um, mm. and I thought, well, I thought I was all right at law. That's why I'm studying law. Like, I did A-level mm. law, um, and the lecturer said to me, uh, where's your bibliography? I was like, bibli what? I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, what's, what's one of them? He was like, what about your footnotes? And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, I don't know what footnotes are. What do you mean? <laughs> footnotes <laughs> but like nobody had gone through that and I couldn't go home and talk to my mum or dad about it dad yeah. I, I got like put in some footnotes like do you know what this is no just work hard you know our parents are great <laughs> um, but they would just say you know study harder and I'm like I don't know what I'm meant to be studying to study harder so yeah, yeah it's that it's that support that's absolutely vital mm, yeah absolutely now I have to give a shout out to your website, Try This Teaching. Um, thank you, thank you. Many years ago, I mean, eight years ago, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've been on Twitter, what, like 11 years now, but um, I remember following you a long, long time ago, and there was some tweet you put out about questioning, mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, I'm going to try that tomorrow. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it literally was the next day in school, I tried it, and it was brilliant, and it just stayed a part of my, uh, and there was loads of stuff you put out like that, mm -hmm. that, I, you know, I was like, oh, it made a difference to my teaching, actually. And, um, and I think it's... It, that sort of thing, uh, I kind of lament that it's disappeared, it's disappearing off Twitter. And maybe it's my timeline or whatever, but I think it, it really is fantastic. What do you think? There are different forms of CPD, but what do you think makes great CPD? To be honest, I thought long and hard about this. Um, I think anything that makes our teaching more efficient and effective is essentially great CPD. Um, and if you think about kind of any real strategy or any real piece of research or evidence or kind of uh, practice that's put out there is all about streamlining what we do, how we do it, when we do it and what we don't do. So great CPD should be about taking the things that we do day in, day out, which we repeat day in, day out and mm. thinking about how can we construct these repetitive actions and mind frames and situations into a way that could be really efficient and effective. Mm. And that varies for various people, obviously. And about yeah. the, the, the thing about good CPD is sometimes 
there's such a huge kind of variance in what does CPD include. Some people want academic papers and journals and research to really dig deep into. Some people just want really low effort, high impact, effective strategies that they can try, mm. refine and place into their lessons. And mm. I think the reality is that good CPD should involve anything that makes what we do day in, day out more efficient and effective. Um, and, yeah. and, and sometimes we overcomplicate it and sometimes we try to make it a lot more difficult than it is when mm. the reality is that teachers are busy. We all know that nobody's got mm. time to do more. So what we're actually asking you to do is think about what you're doing. How can you slimline it and actually do what you're doing in a more efficient and effective way? Yeah. Yeah. I love that because like you say, it is, it, there's a lot of stuff I hear about teaching and learning at the moment that I'm like, but isn't that just, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that I'm like, but isn't that just teaching? Mm -hmm. That's just normal teaching. But they, they put all these fancy words around yeah. it and as though it's, you know, rocket science or something. And I, and I, I get a bit frustrated by that because it's, it's the it makes it thing, sound yeah. more complex than it same, actually is. Yeah, absolutely. So the term differentiation, um, the term scaffolding, the mm. term, all of these kind of terms, when you break them down, ultimately, they're as old as teaching themselves. They're mm. as old as what we do. And hence why the, my whole website, trythisteaching.com, was designed around 12 years ago in a couple of schools ago where I said to all teachers, if we put together one idea, and this was back in the day of blogger, blog spot, mm. um, I said, if we all place one idea as a post, there's 110 of us, we'll have 110 ideas and we could all share each other's ideas. Mm. Only about 10 teachers ended up putting an idea. <laughs> so I ended up just putting 100 ideas up myself yeah. and then it just kind of just expanded. And the amount of teachers yeah. that have said, oh my God, I tried that really simple really straightforward idea yeah and i put that in place in my lesson and thank you i'm like no no there's nothing to thank all you've done is you've taken something that you do day in day out and you've either streamlined it or you bulked it up and that's mm. that's the most important thing and i think the best thing about and I, and I share this whenever i deliver cpds is the best thing about ideas are we don't have to use them so don't mm. get offended by them if somebody shares an idea that you think well that sounds like a load of nonsense just don't use it Simple yeah. as that. Just, just, just go, <laughs> all right, cool, thanks for that, and off I go. It's a bit like if I'm scrolling through my TV um, and I see a program and I think, that looks pants, I don't get angry about it. I just yeah. keep on. I just go yeah. to the next show and just watch something else. Yeah, and that's why I don't understand the rage that I see on Twitter sometimes when somebody puts something out and then there's like this pylon of people having a go at this poor person that's just shared a resource saying what a pile of whatever it is mm -hmm. you know and I just think well if, it might not work for you but it, wor mm -hmm. it works for them mm -hmm. and isn't the ultimate goal that the students benefit yeah, the ultimate absolutely. goal is the student outcome so how you get there um, isn't as important as the outcome yeah and I always use we've all heard the phrase know your students right Mm. Um, so I've added a little bolt onto that phrase, which is know your students, not just students. So what I mean by that is don't just read an idea or a book or a blog or listen to a podcast and think that will apply. Know mm. the students that you're trying to apply that to. 
So that means yeah. contextualizing and personalizing and drawing reference. So, you know, as a qualified Senko, once you've taught one child with autism, you've taught one child with autism. So yeah. somebody puts an idea out and goes, this is great for my autistic children. It might well be great for your autistic children, but it doesn't mm -hmm. mean it will. So apply it by knowing your students, not just students as a mass collective now. Yeah. And I think that that seems to be an issue as well. Like we've we've talked about racism, we're talking about differentiation and so on. But this idea of, oh, this is um, seeing people as a whole group, you know, saying that, oh, this will work for them or mm -hmm. th this is how they feel. Well, no, mm -hmm. that's not how I feel. Because like, like with racism, coming back to that, um, I can tell you my lived experience, mm -hmm. but that is different to my own brother's experience. Mm -hmm. Even and, and though I remember, the same family, you know. And I recall years ago, you and I haven't agreed on previous uh, situations around kind of... Uh, viewpoints on things but it's about mm -hmm. knowing that you can still have those constructive conversations without yes. getting into sledging and slanging matches I, yeah. I do i do firmly believe though that twitter for me personally is not a place to debate twitter for me personally is not a place where i will get into discussions with people because mm -hmm. the nuance is lost emotional literacy yeah. in terms of understanding how those words should come across is lost so personally even when i know categorically that i'm right which obviously in my head is all the time i just say <laughs> i just say thank you for your opinion have a great evening and i just mm. leave it at that and i but try you to be used to be like that <laughs> no I, I i didn't um and the thing is and i guess that's a bit that's a bit growing up as well a bit of growing yeah. up as well and i think that's a bit of losing kind of my original kind of background in terms of you'd never back down from a situation you'd always mm. stand up in front of it but then the more you learn, the more you grow up and the more you see those older guys when you were younger in a club, just walking away from a situation and going, you know what, my bad, I apologise. And you go, ah, look at them. And then you realise actually there's a reason why they're doing that. And there's yeah. a reason why they, they're far more mature and far more understanding than I am right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Anything else you want to say about great CPD? I think the good thing about CPD is that we, we, we need to remind ourselves that we have to pace ourselves with CPD. And mm. the problem with Twitter especially is that we will see and try to kind of uh, engage with and process too much at too close a time period. Mm -hmm. So I always use the phrase one tweak a week, like a mm -hmm. small adaptation in your practice a week. And whenever I deliver CPD, I always ask people to align their ideas into a short, medium or a long-term plan. Mm -hmm. And the problem with online blogs and articles and podcasts, etc., is you'll go, that sounds great. That looks lovely. That looks amazing. That worked really well. And then you end up allocating your whole week to be doing those things. And mm -hmm. actually, they don't work like that. So just pace yourself. Think of what you need to do to develop mm -hmm. and then address that as a weekly format. Um, yeah. And if an idea doesn't work, just ditch it. The problem with ideas are when the ideas are attached to one's ego and they're then told mm -hmm. or you're then associating your ego with the idea by saying, no, I must do this. This is what's going to work. Let it go. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work, let it go. Yeah. And that goes for leaders as well. Absolutely. And that's where yeah. the ego comes in mainly, to be mm -hmm. honest. You know, I've written a policy on this. This is my idea. I've worked hard on this. You should put this in place. But mm -hmm. if your colleagues are feeding back, this isn't working. 
This yeah. is really not effective. And then if a leader then says, no, no, but we must do this. Why? Why must yeah. we do this? Yeah. You know, what's the aim for this? So it's, you know, if it, it, whereas if you disassociate your ego with that and go, you know what? I tried that. It didn't work. Mm. Let's think about something more efficient and effective. Yeah. I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's the vulnerability of being a leader is to be able to say, is this working? And to be able to hear as much as it hurts, actually, it's not working. Mm -hmm. Then it's really important to change it. Absolutely. Like, what's the point in it? You know, mm -hmm. because you're yeah. just wasting everybody's time and the kids aren't benefiting ultimately. No. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Without yeah. doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, Amjad, it's been great talking to you. And, and, you, um, and, you. I, and uh, I'm sure I will badger you to come <laughs> on to my show again. Yeah, it'll uh, be a pleasure. A bit more time. Okay. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks very Take much. Care. Take All right. Care. Bye -bye. Cheers. Bye. -bye. Bye. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. The Children's Commissioner, Dame Rachel D'Souza, has warned the Prime Minister not to close schools in response to the Omicron variant, despite cases in the UK reaching 160. Speaking on the Andrew Marshall, she said... Lockdown was a terrible time for the whole nation. It's also why I think we must not close schools again. We must not. I would urge the Prime Minister not to close schools. The children want things back to normal. They took a huge hit for us. We must not close schools again. And my head teacher colleagues across the country are incredibly good at managing this situation. I watched them rush to support the most vulnerable. And I would definitely advise not to do this if there is any other option. 280,000 children were recorded absent from school on November the 25th, 2.6% of all pupils in England. Wrexham Council have supported young leaders in a project called Healthy Minds Haven, which is designed to improve mental well-being in school communities. There will be an event on the 15th of December to which senior leadership teams will be invited when they will learn how their school can become a healthy minds haven. Interim Clinical Service Manager from North Wales CAMS, School Inreach Service, Sophie Gorst, will speak about why she is supporting the campaign AIM to improve mental health support for young people in schools. This has been your daily education news briefing. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, I'm Steve Woods and this is Two Minute Tech. Shortcuts are key combinations that allow tasks to be performed faster. You may be familiar with Control-C for copy and V for paste. Here's one that may just change your life. Did you know 
there's a shortcut for bookmarking a web page. When browsing the internet, you can quickly bookmark a page by holding down Ctrl and pressing D. If on a Mac, it's Command and D. Once you press this key combination, you're presented with the option to save the page into your bookmarks. Now, that might not be the most earth-shattering revelation in your use of tech, but let's add a little more to the mix with an additional three-key combination. Hold Ctrl, Shift and press B. You can also now show and hide your bookmarks bar. On this bar, you can park your most common bookmarks. Again, on a Mac, replace Ctrl with the Command key, Command, Shift and B. The bookmarks bar can speed things up and you can arrange about 10 bookmarks by dragging them around. Now let's apply this to teaching and improving efficiency. Do you use multiple websites in different lessons and spend time opening them individually? Is your bookmarks bar cluttered or do you drop hyperlinks into your presentations and then wait for them to open? Wouldn't it be great if you can open all your web pages in just a couple of clicks? Well, you can. When creating a bookmark, there's an option to make a folder. So while researching a lesson or topic, you can save bookmarks into one place using the wonderful Control D. Here's the magic. If you right click a folder and select open all, guess what? All bookmarks in that folder open in new tabs ready for your lesson. So when you're planning, use Control D and make a new folder. When you want them, all sites can almost instantly be on your screen and ready to go. Those shortcuts again. Control D to bookmark, Shift Control B for the bookmarks bar, and right click Open All to open all bookmarks in a folder. If on a Mac, replace Control with Command. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. So, Dame Rachel D'Souza, the Children's Commissioner, is she? Um, she's urging, she on and the Andrew Marr show yesterday, she said, urge the Prime Minister not to close school. I mean, it's not like he's quite trigger happy with closing schools or anything, but um, what's interesting, like on LinkedIn, I noticed that um, the headline was out and loads of people had tweeted saying, ah, um, had a uh, message commented saying, absolutely, absolutely, uh, we we mustn't close schools. And, I kind of, and some of them were um, chief execs of schools, some were principals. And I thought, am I living in some kind of parallel universe? Because um, I... I think they need to close schools. You've got this. The the numbers are absolutely rife in the UK. Um, where I am in Spain, all the children from age five upwards wear masks at school. And uh, everyone wears masks in the streets and children wear masks in the streets and so on. And you feel so much safer. I mean, when we were in the UK the last year, we hardly went out. Um, and we didn't send our children back to school either because of the virus. And all of our children's friends ended up with the virus. And the idea of, um, was it 11% of children end up with long COVID? It 
you just think you really don't want to risk that for your kids. That's how we, myself and my husband felt. We didn't want to risk that for our children. Um, but we feel much safer here. Um, but the idea that saying we must not close schools, I can understand in the sense of mental health and well-being and uh, some children, their lifeline is is school. But at the risk of getting ill, I don't know. Because at the end of the day, if the science says you need to close the schools like it did last year, last year before Christmas, uh, Gavin Williamson was threatening to, um, the educa- former education secretary was threatening to sue schools, take certain schools to court because they were talking about closing their school a couple of weeks before Christmas. But during Christmas and after Christmas, those schools were completely vindicated because the kids went back to school first day back. My kids didn't. We didn't send our kids back. But um, kids went back to school for one day. And that evening, Boris Johnson announced the closure of schools, which ended up being for I don't know, was it six to eight weeks, something like that? They didn't go back until March or something. So are we expecting a deja vu? Is this going to happen all over again? Who knows? Um, I was looking at some, I was looking up on, um, just looking at different education systems around the world, really. And because 25% of our listeners are global um, from around the world and I was thinking about the different systems and how people choose what schools their children go to and like I said I grew up in East London Um, every school I went to was across the road literally across the road um, from where I lived choice wasn't really a thing back then Um, And where I lived in a a row of terraced houses, my parents had bought our house uh, back in 1974 when I was one. Um, But next door was a council house, but you couldn't tell the difference between the two houses. And it was like that on our terrace street. Um, Nice houses, but intermingled with uh, council houses, but you'd never be able to tell. Um, When I became a teacher, I became aware of this idea of choice um, and people moving to certain areas to ensure their kids got into specific schools. And where I lived in Ealing in West London, in our square mile radius, we were surrounded by so many schools. We had the pick of fantastic primaries and secondary schools, so it wasn't a thing moving well, this is within Ealing. I mean, in the next borough in Hillingdon, uh, a bit different, but um, and that's where I worked. Um, yeah, so you didn't really hear people moving to different areas for school because Ealing was around, you know, so many good schools in Ealing. It was a bit of a shock moving to Bournemouth because one of the first things I noticed was at baby groups all the parents were talking about was schools and being really anxious about which school their kids are going to get into um some of our friends even sold up their houses in a lovely area and moved to a a not very nice area where there happens to be a really good school um and i was also shocked that 
grammar schools still existed because in London they don't. And probably because mostly Labour boroughs um, and Labour is very much against grammar schools. So I was really shocked that grammar schools is still a thing outside of London. And the fact that, um, you know, so many parents are spending so much money on tuition to pay for their children uh, to try and get them into grammar school, uh, try and get them to pass the 11 plus. So you've got parents who can afford it, who um, are spending all this money. But then these grammar schools are also single sex. So they're selective, they're single sex, and uh, it tends to be parents that can afford their kids to have all this tuition uh, sending their kids there. So it, I would say that's highly selective. And if you're thinking about the general population, if we sent our kids to the grammar school, they would be mixing with a very tiny part of society. It wouldn't be like in Ealing, you'd have kids from affluent families uh, sitting next to kids from very deprived families. But they're all wearing uniform and, you know, there isn't that kind of divide. Um, Before we moved to Spain, I thought, you know, it's important to do a bit of research on the education system. I put a message out on a few expats Facebook groups asking which areas are good. And someone responded, there's no such thing as middle class. Not that I'd mentioned middle class areas, but I said, oh, which areas are good for schools? And, you know, they'd said, well, there's no such thing as middle class areas. Um, All the schools are good. And I thought, well, that can't be true. (laughs) But actually it is. all the schools are actually good. You do have international schools, British, uh, American and German um, schools in in where I live. Um, You've got semi-private schools, which are uh, called concertados. And what that means is when it's semi-private, they're they're still state schools, but they sound like academies in that they're privately owned but funded by the government. So that that sounds very much like an academy, like a UK academy school. You've also got um, uh, public schools, which are which are basically state schools. Um, And I assumed people would say, which you know, which shows how hierarchical it is in the UK. People say, "Well, don't send them to a public school." But they they said, yeah, the public schools are good. The semi-private schools are good. Um, And semi-private as in the parents pay for things more like trips and lunches and um, various equipment and various extra classes like music and that kind of thing. So um, it's not such a, it's not a huge, huge amount. It's not like poor people can't afford this. And the, the other thing I noticed is that poor, um, less affluent people aren't pushed out of areas. They make sure there's affordable housing in each area and they have playgrounds and shops. So they don't just have, 
huge amount of housing with no parking, no shops, no schools in the area. By law, um, they have to have a certain amount of schools in each area. The school day is pretty interesting in Spain. Um, children, primary school children go in from 9 till 12. Then they can have a two and a half to three hour break. Then they're back in three to five, um, which sounds completely alien um, to UK listeners, I bet. Um, that two and a half hour, three hour break is for lunch and for siesta because it does get hot i mean <laughs> we got we got sunburn the other day at lunchtime and it's december it's mad um it kind of feels weird i'm not complaining though um and their school year is mid-september to mid-june so they have about 10 11 weeks for the summer and i have to say it gets to about 40 degrees in valencia so um you don't want to be in a classroom then i mean every classroom i was in that i've ever had was like a greenhouse so hot in the summer quite often i'd take the kids out into the playground and we'd sit under a tree and do our lesson um it was way more productive than just kids falling asleep in the classroom from the heat especially in the afternoon um yeah, so I find that quite interesting that um, year groups are age-based as well. So um, although the school year is September to June, the, they decide which kids are in which year based on the age January to December. And it took me a while to get my head around that. How does that, how does that work? Because you say you used to a different system. But I'm excited about the kids starting in a Spanish school, actually, because they will learn Spanish. They will be surrounded by Spanish and other international children. Our neighbour is German um, and uh, neighbour's uh, kid's friend popped round and we were all having a chat. And, and the boy who was nine spoke French, German and spanish and english and he said oh i only speak a little bit of english but he was fine <laughs> i always find that funny when they say oh, i only speak a little bit of english um and they can hold proper conversations so um yeah it's it's amazing it's a it's quite a melting pot where i am i just want to say a big thank you to john rees uh, really interesting always a pleasure talking to john uh, really good discussion on social services um and the run-up to christmas and a big thank you to all the teachers that are working so so hard uh, during this um unprecedented time i haven't heard that in a while unprecedented time and amjad made it into my show yes he's been threatening for nine months but he made it in and it was great talking to amjad um yeah it's a you know there's a lot of, it's interesting because like he said there was a lot of things we didn't agree with back in the day uh but now quite a lot of our views are quite aligned so that's good to hear um Okay, I think I'm going to do the news, one like, what advert, and then I'll be signing Need off soon after that. Need support phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, 
and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Okay, so uh, time to send, I think somebody's just rung in. Um, so I don't know what just happened there. But yes, anyway, uh, I'll be back next week. Next week, we've got a cracking show coming up. We've got Elham Farhad. I hope I've said that correctly. Elham Farhad from Migrant Leaders coming in to talk to us about her work. Um, this work is absolutely fascinating. And I think Catherine Grice will be joining her because they work together. Uh, Elham Farhad is the founder of uh, this organization. So that'll be fantastic. Uh, the week after that will be the 21st of December and we'll have Jill Berry coming in talking about uh, leadership. But the rest of the day, we've got some fantastic shows coming up. We've got Libby, we've got Rebecca, I think. Uh, no, or is it Lucy? I'm terrible. My brain has gone to mush now. So, I'm going to sign off now. Um, have a great week, people. Um, live for the week, not just the weekend. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.